you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. As is true each week, uh, we have sought to, uh, in the course of our scripture readings and our singing, uh, to be reminded of the goodness of God in Christ, of the hope and assurance that those who trust in Him have in Him in life to remind us that this life is not the only life, but it is the life that we live now, to encourage us to seek to live that life, to bring honor and glory to Him, looking ahead to the day when the absolute reality will set in that we will live with Him in eternity. There is hope beyond this life. There's hope beyond these struggles. There's hope beyond this suffering. There's hope beyond this sickness. There's hope beyond the struggles that you're dealing with. Uh, for those who trust Christ, uh, the hope rests in Him today uh, as we look to Him uh, for eternity. Galatians chapter 5. Begin reading in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is our ninth and final week of the series entitled Reflecting the glory of God in a fallen world. Uh, you know, we've emphasized several things, and I want to reemphasize those today because I think it's important for us to remember these things. First, all followers of Christ, those who are genuinely saved, those who are believers, those who are genuine Christians, those who claim Christ, those who profess Christ. I don't know of a better way to say that, but those who are genuine in that, uh, are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. That is, God 
takes up residence in a believer's body. Why don't you hear that again? Just think about that for just a moment. That God takes up residence in a believer's body. I know it sounds strange to say it that way. And you certainly will have a hard time explaining it to someone. In fact, you can't. Because it is a supernatural work. And I know it sounds impossible, but it's true. Remember what Jesus told His disciples. It's recorded in John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I want us to focus on this last phrase for just a moment. He will be in you. You know, we can imagine in some way how God can be with us. In fact, we pray that way, don't we? God be with us. We even pray for others. God be with whoever it is that we are calling out in prayer for. Unbelievers will even pray, say, God be with me when they're going through a difficult time. But we don't pray, God be in us. It's hard for us to even think that way. And we certainly don't pray, God be in so-and-so for whatever's going on. The Holy Spirit lives inside of every believer. Get that. In fact, If the Holy Spirit doesn't live inside of you, you are not a believer. And knowing that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us is an objective reality. In in other words, there are some objective things that we can look for. That's one of the reasons that we have dealt with this text for nine weeks. And how that impacts us as we seek to reflect the glory of God in a fallen world. Through the Holy Spirit, we have life. The Holy Spirit lives inside of the believer and gives life. And we have reference to that. We've looked at this text over the course of the last eight weeks, but I want us to be reminded of it again. It comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. And listen to it. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And then Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The point we've been stressing is that along with every other work of God toward man's redemption, the reality is that the believer is indwelled by the very Spirit of God and that it is a supernatural work. 
It is not a natural thing. So even for us to talk about it seems strange because we are talking in the realm of the supernatural, but we are talking about something that is real for every believer. That should rest with us. It should undergird our thinking about who we are as individuals, about our witness in the world, and about our purpose. The second thing that we have repeated weekly is that even though the Spirit of God lives in the believer, the believer is still susceptible to temptation, still remains in ways very vulnerable to sin, and does in fact sin. There's a constant tension within the believer. That is that tension that rests between a war that goes on with the Spirit of God and the very desires of man to yield to, to satisfy the desires of the flesh. That's the reason that Paul writes in the way that he did. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And the third thing that we emphasized is that this supernatural work in the presence of this ongoing tension is intended to reflect the glory of God. It reflects His glory in at least five ways. First, it reflects the glory that in that the Holy Spirit's mark in a believer's life is His fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. So the evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit is the ongoing display of the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. We've said this, but I want to comment on it again. As a believer matures, and I'm not talking about in age, but as a believer matures spiritually, then there is greater evidence, there are greater displays of the fruit of the Spirit. It's magnified. Second, it's reflected in the believer's absolute dependence on God. Dependence on God as he or she lives in the midst of this life of tension. And third, it is, it's the glory of God is reflected in the display of this fruit in the life of local congregations. That's what we looked at last week. How that fruit being displayed in the life of individuals that are connected in a local congregation that are committed to one another. It shows up in the way we relate to each other. The way we care for each other. The way we love one another. The glory of God is being reflected in those things. Fourth, and this is where I thought we would end today, but we're not. But I want to point us to it. It's reflected in the way that we do good works in the world. i just point you back for just a moment. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we're just gonna, I just want you to see it. We're not going to read it. I want you to see it in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 5. We're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have not at least thought about it, I want you to think about the fruit of the Spirit as it relates to the Beatitudes and how closely related they are. But I want you to look down in verse 13. Coming out of that, Jesus says, You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What kind of good works? The good works that flow out of the fruit of Spirit. The good works that flow out of us individually and corporately as this body and as you, if you're a professing believer, as you live in this dark world. That's what Jesus is talking about. And then there is the fifth thing. And that is the glory of God is reflected in the believer's ongoing personal spiritual discipline. It's here that we want to concentrate our time for the next few minutes. We've mentioned earlier that there is a very unique and interesting relationship in the order in which this fruit that we have listed, and let's go back to Galatians chapter 5 and look at this order. It begins with love, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's a unique order in that. It's interesting. We spoke of how love preceded the rest of the characteristics. It's the, it's the ground for all of these. It's the motive for all the others. And then we saw how joy and peace directly flowed from love. And how joy and peace were characteristics that seemed to be more, more personal in nature. More inwardly focused, inwardly nurturing and beneficial while patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness at least seem to be shaped more for the edification and the care of others. And this leaves us with self-control. You may have wondered last week, we might have thought, well, we were in in there. Why haven't we mentioned self-control? Well, the more I read this text, the more I've considered the position of this last description of the fruit of the Spirit. As we've mentioned, the characteristics that are described as fruit of the Spirit are characteristics that can be identified in the lives of most people. And we have stated why. And if you haven't called on to it yet, hear it again. Because all people are image bearers of God. We should expect to see resemblances of these characteristics. But let's be reminded, these characteristics should and will look very much different in the lives of believers for at least two reasons. One reason is, and it'll look very much different in the life of a believer, is because they will be extremely intensified. So thinking about it this week. You know, bright light looks different than, than dim light. White and violet fire look different than orange flamed and red fire. You know why? Because it's hotter. In fact, violet and white fire and the flame uh, is about twice as hot as whenever we see orange and red flames. Well, that's the difference. It will be intensified. It'll be magnified in the life of the believer. And the other is, it'll be distinctively different because the person indwelled by the Spirit of God has God in him or her and is intentional in bringing glory to God. In fact, as they mature and as you mature, uh, they become more and more focused on giving God, glory, on living for the glory 
of God. This is the difference between a believer's self-control and that of, let's say, the Stoics. Some of you may remember something of the Stoics if you uh, recall your history and or if you ever took a philosophy class. Well, Stoicism was a school of, of Hellenistic philosophy. It, it was founded about 2,000 years before Christ there in Athens. And the thinking and the philosophy uh, was this, is that people need to be virtuous. In fact, they held to uh, the four cardinal virtues, that is wisdom, courage, justice, uh, and temperance, or, or self-control. And that they live with that in accordance with nature, knowing that their life would be better, that they would come to happiness, and they would likely be more fulfilled if they held to these virtues and if they were people of self-control. You see, it's interesting that Stoicism flourished through most of that era until about the 3rd century A.D., and then at about the 3rd century A.D., it shifted because Christianity was on the rise, it became, a, uh, if you will, became the, uh, the religion of the state. And not because it became a religion of the state, but because believers now were living virtuous lives for entirely different reasons. What were they living it for? Well, they were looking to self-control and a virtuous life to bring honor and glory to God where the Stoics were looking to live a virtuous life to bring glory to themselves and just to be more fulfilled here on this earth. That's the reason that we began this morning and Booney reminded us, we came in here with all kinds of feelings and emotions and struggles and challenges. And some of us came in here where we are on top of the world and some of us came in here where we feel like I can't get much lower. Some of us came in here as great victors and others of us came in here and feel like great failures and the rest of us are somewhere in between. And if this life was all there was, then whatever we were feeling at the moment would govern how we are, would govern how we would live life, would govern how we would see life. But once we cast our eyes on eternity and once we begin to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and once we begin to look to the glory of God, then we understand how these things now are put in perspective. Because we know that today we're on top of the world. We may be at the bottom of the world tomorrow, but nothing has changed when our eyes are set on Christ. Or if today we're kind of on the bottom of things and, and we just feel trashed and we just feel like junk. We look to Christ and knowing that He is the one who has fulfilled everything for us and now our living and our self-control, our temperance and all of these things point to His glory. The point is, is that self-control is a characteristic that can be sought and developed and displayed because it leads to certain benefits. For the athlete, well, for the athlete, personal discipline is necessary to, just, to uh, achieve success, to win, to be on top of his or her game. For the person who strives for certain financial goals, well, personal discipline and work and handling their money and management, uh, that's sort of necessary for them to reach those goals. And for students, self-control, personal discipline, well, that's necessary for academic achievement, isn't it? We all know that. We know something of self-control. 
But what does that have to do with the life of the believer? Well, the Holy Spirit directed Paul to include in the list of characteristics that describe the fruit of the Spirit this thing of self-control. It includes in this list this being of certain significance. And I don't believe that it's because that it's of less value. No, I believe that we begin with love and on the end of that there is self-control. Which tells us what about ourselves? That there are things within ourselves that need to be governed. There are things within ourselves that need that need to need to be pushed down, and there are things by virtue of the Spirit of God living in us that need to be lifted up. Therefore, self-control is necessary. Love guides everything, points us to the glory of God, and then at the end of the day, we come back and we still are called on to live this life. For those of you who have professed Christ, you know that to be true. We can't just sit back and say, okay, God lives in me. I'll just do what I want to do. Well, we can't do that. But I would tell you today, even for the life of the young believer, self-control is important to you and should be important to you, just like it's important to me as I think of the things that need to be pushed down in my life, the desires of the flesh that I constantly struggle with and elevate and push forward and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, Jesus knew this. That's why He said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those that find it are few. Hard things require discipline. Hard things require self-discipline. Hard things require self-control. Grace, that I thought of you and what you've just been through with Ranger School. was a part of that really difficult and really hard. You haven't told us all about it, but we know that it was. And there was in the course of this the self-discipline that was necessary to stay the course and continue to push forward. That's an example of a little bit of what it's like in living this life for the glory of God. Jesus said it was hard. And not many would would even approach that way. In other words, we cannot make it in the broad path. We have to stay in that narrow way, and it is a hard way. And then Jesus went on to say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake save it. In other words, whoever would live for himself to satisfy his own pleasures and desires will lose it. We have to deny ourselves. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It is a life that requires self-control. It's a life that cannot be known in the wide open spaces of living in a world of self-indulgent For self's sake. I'm not just talking to the young, but I will tell you teenagers. In as much as you know, 
You've got a lot of life in front of you. And I know there are all kinds of things out there that are drawing your attention. There's success, there's money, there's relationships, there's independence. All of these things are pulling at you. And some of those paths you are going to have to walk down just because it's necessary in living. But I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me. If those are things that you're striving for and you're running into to satisfy yourself, and that's true for all of us, if that is your mindset, hear me, you are on a road of destruction and you will not be fulfilled. You know why? Because you can't. Not because I've said it, because it's impossible. There's some of us who have testimonies of that in our own life. I would just caution you there. In April of 2019, Jeremy Engel wrote an article that was published by the New York Times. Here's a portion of it. Just listen just a minute. He said, imagine you are from another planet and have arrived in the United States. Your mission, you must send a report to your extraterrestrial superiors describing the cultural beliefs of these strange people called Americans. And then he went back and referenced David Brooks' article, Five Lies Our Culture Tells. In this, David Brooks goes on to list out the core beliefs and the lies, the core beliefs of Americans and the lies that they hold. Listen to a few of them. Career, career success is fulfilling. This is for all of us now. Career success is fulfilling. This is the lie we foist on the young. In their tender years, we put the most privileged of them inside of college admissions process that puts achievement and status anxiety at the center of their lives. That begins advertising the lifelong mantra, if you make it, life will be good. The truth is, success spares you from the shame you might experience if you feel yourself to be a failure. But career success alone does not provide positive peace or fulfillment. If you build your life around it, your ambitions will always race out in front of what you've achieved, leaving you anxious and dissatisfied. Why? Because there's something else out there now to fulfill you. This didn't. We've got to get something else. The other is, is I can make myself happy. I can make myself happy. This is the lie of self-sufficiency. This is the lie that happiness is an individual accomplishment. If I can have just one more victory, if I can just lose 15 more pounds, or if I can get better at this or better at that, then I will be happy. But people looking back on their lives from their deathbeds tell us that happiness is found amid thick, loving relationships. That is the reason why there is nothing like the relationships that we have here in the body of Christ. You're going to get an opportunity to sing about that at the end of this service today. 
reminding us that it is the body of Christ where we will spend our time. The body of Christ that we will live in. Why? Because that's where love is found and known. Because why not? The Holy Spirit dwells inside of the believers. The Spirit loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. The Spirit loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit. The Father loves the Son and loves those who are in Christ and love those whose spirit are in Him and they love each other. Another one is life is an individual journey. This is the lie that books like Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go tell. In adulthood, each person goes on a personal trip and racks up a bunch of experiences and whoever has the most experiences wins. This lie encourages people to believe that freedom is the absence of restraint. Have we heard anything about that? Looked at that not long ago when we were looking at what? This whole intense sense of individualism that we live in. But just be unattached. Just be on your own. Make your own way. Stay on the move. Keep your options open. In reality, the people who live best tie themselves down. And the people who live best tie themselves down to Christ. They anchor their souls to Him and they are bound and tied to each other in the body of Christ. They don't ask, uh, what cool thing can I do next? They ask, what is my responsibility here? I want you to think about this in relation to the church. How many people do we see moving from church to church and place to place and not connected with any church because they are looking for the next cool ministry? For what? To satisfy themselves, not giving attention to the responsibility that they have to other people. Rich and successful people are worth more than poor and less successful people. We pretend we don't tell this lie, but our whole meritocracy points to it. In fact, the meritocracy contains this whole skein of lies. The message of the meritocracy is that you are what you accomplish. What does all this mean? Well, it all sounds familiar. Lives lived for self. Lives lived for self. Satisfying what? The desires of the flesh. And notice that this list is not the end list of what it means to satisfy the desires of the flesh. But just listen again what Paul has to say. He says that these works of the flesh in sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, in other words, seeking after other things, sorcery, other religions, enmity, strife, jealousy, being ruled by wanting what someone else has, fits of anger because we don't get our way, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Does anybody come to mind whenever you hear these? I'm not talking about the, the person that you think is the worst of the worst. Have you seen any of these? Let me ask you this. Has this been any 
of us at some point in time in our life. Rather yet, is it someone here today? The point is, is that that is a life that is lived without self-control, with no restraints on oneself, or either disciplining ourselves for merits for something other than Christ. So what is distinct about self-control as a fruit of the Spirit? Let's give our attention to that for just a few minutes. As we begin to speak about self-control, and I mentioned this a while ago, remember, it is the idea that we need to be controlled. We really do need to be controlled. You need to be controlled. And you have a responsibility in this process. Christ for those of us who are believers, has placed His Spirit in us. And now we conform to the image of Christ and practice self-control as Christ practiced self-control. Think about it for just a moment. What are some things that we know that Christ controlled? Well, we know that immediately following His baptism, He was in the wilderness for 40 days and He fasted 40 days. And we know that at least at the end of that time, there was this heavy barrage of temptation that came on Him. Even as simple as turning the stones into bread. And what hungry man would not want bread? Most of us can't fast for three or four days. Most of us have a hard time fasting for three or four hours. And when we do, what do we want? We crave for food. And Jesus at the end of this time, who had the power to turn the stone into bread, was tempted to do so. And He denied Himself. Peter tells us how He denied Himself in that He did not lash out against those who were accusing Him. He did not lash out against those who were seeking to take His life. He didn't lash out from the cross and strike those down who were killing Him. But did what? But who rested in the providence of God who is the judge and would be the avenger in due season. And we could go on and on. But we know that we need to be controlled. The presence of something within us that needs to be bridled. I know I have things in my life that need to be bridled, that need to be reined back. And then there's the possibility in us or through us for drawing on some source of power to restrain it. For the born again, our hearts are new. But the poison of indwelling sin still, as we said, courses through our veins. Let's look at two things in closing that help us in thinking about self-control in our own life and what role that plays as a believer. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, please listen. Please listen. Our call is to trust in Him because all of this is grounded in faith. How do we know that? I want you to think about it for just a moment. For those of you who have been here who have helped us and worked through this text for the last eight weeks, know this to be true. This text of the fruit of the Spirit is couched in Galatians. 
which was Paul's argument to this church that they were saved. They were justified by their faith in the atoning work of Christ alone. The circumcision was not necessary. The law couldn't save them. Something else did not need to accompany the atoning work of Christ. The only thing was to trust in Him and His atoning work. Faith lays at the foundation of these things. And I would tell you today that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, First and foremost, we're not sending you out today to discipline yourself to do better. Even if you did better, you're still lost, still without Christ, still no hope in eternity. But our call is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-control is given to us by God. And with it contains Divine perspective and divine power. Listen at what Paul wrote to Timothy. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Did you hear that? Listen to the relationship. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but He gave us a spirit of power and love and self-control. Notice the power and the power to love and gave us self-control. The power of self-control. Peter said it this way, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Did you hear that? There is this divine perspective in praying for those things that are consistent with the will of God. And our self-control is married to that. Take your copies of Scripture and turn to 2 Peter 1. Let's look at verses 3-8. through And hear it in this context as Peter continues to write. 2 Peter 1, 3-8. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now I want you to hear this. I want you to hear the association. The association that we have here. We're going to talk more about this. But the association with life and godliness and self-control. His divine power meaning that it's coming from Him, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I want you to hold that just a moment. And if you still have Galatians, if not, just make reference of this. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Does it sound familiar? 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. What did we hear just a moment ago? Paul writes to Timothy and he says what? He writes to Timothy and he says that God has given us a spirit of love, of power, of love, and of self-control. Look at the order here. Notice how self-control and steadfastness and godliness leads to brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. And that's what we have been arguing in the life of the believer because the Spirit of God dwells in the life of the believer and are increasing. They keep you, get this, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the role that self-control plays in that? It is given by God and in that aligns our priorities, in that aligns our perspective on life, in that causes us to see and to know the divine qualities that rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and those are the things that a believer wants and they are held in that right place when we practice self Control. Number two, self-control is necessary for practicing righteousness. And I want you to hear this. Paul argues in Galatians, and we have already looked at that, I'm just reminding you of this, that we are justified by our faith in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of that work of justification is the imputed righteousness that comes upon the believer. In other words, Christ's atoning work paid our sin debt. He was our propitiation. He bore the wrath of God that we deserve. But He also then imputes His righteousness upon us that justifies us and allows us, makes possible for us, enables us to enter into the presence of God. That's why when we begin to talk about the supernatural work of the Spirit of God coming in us, He comes in us and makes us alive. That is not an inconsistent dwelling with who God is because Christ has imputed His righteousness upon us. And He has placed the righteous Spirit within us. You see the connection? You see, how, you see how significant it is for us to be consciously aware of the fact that the Spirit of God lives in us. He has justified us. He imputes His righteousness upon us. Therefore, practical righteousness becomes of particular importance to that one who's the righteousness of God has been imputed upon. That's the reason with the Spirit of God in us, 
Practical righteousness now becomes more than just doing good works to somehow or another earn the favor of God, but now becomes consistent with pleasing the God who has saved us. Jesus said, we read earlier, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, whoever denies himself for my glory, who denies himself to live for me, who will deny himself to exalt me, who will deny himself to seek me, who will deny himself to say, my Jesus, I love thee, thou art mine, who will deny himself for praising and honoring God. That person has life, whose life is protected in Christ. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. Luke emphasizes this again when recording a portion of the meeting that Paul and Felix had. It's recorded in Acts 24. Turn there if you will. Acts 24, looking in verse 24. For those who don't know the context, Paul has been arrested. He's on his way to Rome. And... In the course of that, he is under house arrest for part of the time. He's in prison for part of the time. And it's a long process before he ever makes it to Rome. But listen to what he says as he has uh, this meeting with Felix, who was a particular ruler that he stood before and, and gave his case to. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. Now I want you to catch that. Speaking to him about faith in Jesus Christ, we have already sung in two of our songs today the absolute necessity, and we have heard from the psalmist to do what? To declare of the goodness of God. To declare of His salvation. To declare the proclamation that comes in the way of God and His saving work. And that's what Paul does. He is here sharing the gospel. And he speaks of the faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned, catch this, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he went uh, for him often and conversed with him. Felix's intent was, Paul, just pay me off and, and I'm going to let you go. Offer me a bribe and I'll let you go. That would have been the self-serving thing for Paul. I guarantee you if Paul had made an appeal to the churches and said, come up with some cash to get me out of jail, they would have done that. They would have done that. But that's not what he did. He shared the gospel. He practiced self-control. But he spoke of righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. Listen to the relationship that's there. Self-control is a defense 
against unrighteous acts. Solomon wrote, a man without self-control is like a city broken in two and left without walls. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us today because we don't live in a city that is walled in. But in Solomon's day, it meant everything because that wall was the last main line of defense to protect the city from those who would seek to destroy it. And Solomon said, a man without self-control is like a city whose walls do not exist and has already been torn in two. In other words, a man without self-control is wide open for all the things that we spoke of today and more when we were talking about distractions and diversions and things that will keep us from exalting God and honoring Him. Self-control is a defense against unrighteous acts. And writing to the church at Corinth, Paul writes, Do you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And here's why they do it. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But then he says, but we are imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I practice self-control, Paul says, and I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air for all the things that are around me that are unfulfilling and unsatisfying. In other words, I am boxing, I am fighting those things which seek to destroy me. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What is he saying? Self-control is necessary for our testimony and our witness. By faith, we say no to the desires of the flesh. And by faith, we say yes to a Christ-exalting life. We are not our own. We are in Christ owned by God. We don't do this on our own. God has given it to us. And that's the reason that when Paul was writing to the church at Philippi, and I know you've seen this verse in a lot of context, but I want you to know that this strikes at the heart of it, what I'm getting ready to say. When Paul was writing to the church at Philippi, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can practice self-control because God has empowered it and given it to me. I can do it because Christ strengthens me. I want to encourage you at that next juncture, where there is a decision, believer, that has to be made of whether I am going to exalt Christ or give in to the desires of the flesh. Be it anger, be it immorality, be it untruthfulness, 
be it being unkind, be it being uncaring, be it being sharp, be it being failing in our parenting, be it failing in our relationships, be it being lazy, be it turning away from God's Word, remember self-control. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And He does. Which is the very reason Paul, when writing to Timothy, said, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not up to us, and yet it is up to us. That's part of that supernatural work. It's part of our responsibility and yielding by faith constantly, constantly to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no accident that the last characteristic listed in the list of characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And if we practice it, Listen, Christ will get the glory. And you know what else? When Christ gets the glory, He is our prize. Not an attaboy, not a wreath hung around a neck, not a medal, not a trophy, not a bank account. Not a car, not a piece of property, not a boat, not our name written on a plaque somewhere, not a building named after us, not a road named after us. Why? Because we're on a narrow, narrow, hard, hard way. I'm being honest with you folks. But the good news is, we trust in Christ and His atoning work for our life, the Spirit of God will indwell us. And He, Christ, will be our prize. I want us to pause there. It's not the end. Because I think it's incumbent upon us to pray for each other. That's our intercession. And I know normally it's centered somewhere else. We're praying for other churches. I want us to pray for each other today. There are those here who haven't professed Christ. You may be a believer, but you've not yet professed Christ. I want to encourage you today to profess Him publicly and then walk with Him publicly as witness and testimony for the glory of God. Do it when you're weak and do it when you're strong. 
Do it in your failures and do it in your successes. God intended both to reflect His glory in His redeeming work. But for those of us who've trusted Christ, let's pray for one another that our self-control would be seen and grasped as a reality and a constant in our living that we may in this body and outwardly reflect the glory of God. We can talk about evangelism all day long. We can talk about sharing Jesus. We can talk about all of those things. But until we are seriously committed to reflecting the glory of God, those things are weak. Why? Because it is our witness and our testimony. Paul said, I discipline this body so that in my preaching that I not wind up failing. He is constantly disciplining himself. Let's pray for each other. We're moving into the Advent season. Take the Advent devotional and use this as a beginning to seeking God. Finding out who Jesus is and loving Him as we sang just a moment ago. Let's pray. Lord God, Father to Your children, Creator to all others, we as Your children bow before You today and declare Your glory and say thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You for Your Spirit that indwells us and gives us life. Thank You for the call to righteousness. Thank You, Father, that You have given us Your Spirit and in that self-control that we may reflect Your glory among ourselves and love each other well. Help us in this. We cry today because we are dependent entirely upon you. Cause our wills to be conformed to you, to where we seek you in all things. And Father, those things that we struggle with, your word has told us that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Help us as we seek to push down and to destroy and to mortify those things within us that stand opposed to You. And then, Father, would You well up within us like a volcano those things that most magnify and reflect Your glory and that it would spew out of us onto each other edifying one another and ultimately would spew out in this community for your glory that those who don't know you would come to know you. And Father, for those here today who have not yet professed Christ, who have not yet trusted in you, we ask God today
that according to your will that you would speak to them and call them to salvation and draw them to yourself, causing them to see at this moment that without you, they are hopelessly lost. And as Paul told Felix, that judgment awaited. We ask these things in Christ's name and for His sake and Your glory. Amen.